Hello, I'm Theron Tolsma, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I'm a junior member. We're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. This semester, we're asking senior members and junior members to continue their conversations outside the classroom. Often, this looks like staying after class to hash out a final question, having conversations all the way down our very long hallway, or meeting for coffee to workshop an idea that was born from class discussions. It's encounters like this, big and small, that make up the spirit of an ICS education. I'm Mark Standish, and I'm also an ICS junior member. Today, we're talking to senior member Rebecca Schmick. Inspiration can strike at unexpected moments. And for a student, there's nothing quite like the feeling of something clicking, of an idea long percolating at the back of your mind, finally rushing to the fore, of connections being forged. So for our first segment, we're asking our new junior members to share some enlivening, entertaining, and challenging moments when they've experienced just such sparks of inspiration. Today's question, what has been your favorite and or the most challenging paper you've written this year? Well, I have only written one paper, so I'm going to go with that one. Um, I combined two of my papers into one giant monstrosity of a paper, um, which was really interesting because I had never written anything that long. Um, But the themes, they were both for classes with Nick and the themes just worked really well together. So I talked about um, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in Exodus and then more broadly like theological perspectives on freedom. So uh, yeah, so I looked, I've always, it's, it's been kind of just, you know, like a recurring question. I've always wondered like, what does it mean when the Bible says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart? Um, because even as a kid, I, I kind of was like, oh, that seems really unfair. Like Pharaoh didn't really have a choice. Um, and so so I chose that passage for my Bib Foundations paper because um, I had always wondered about it. And it was, it was really challenging um, because there's no one interpretation that I found like fully satisfactory. And so um, I guess I came to the conclusion, like looking at sort of the structure of the narrative um, and the different language used for hardening, uh, I came to the conclusion that uh, what Pharaoh was doing and what God was doing is, is not quite as simple as just, you know, God arbitrarily making decisions um, or, there, there was, it's not the kind of determinism that we would think it is. Um, and so I think it's really significant that Pharaoh 
makes his own choices um, first, actually, in the narrative. So he actually hardens his own heart. That's one thing. Um, Second, that God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart is um, it's not permanent. Like God hardens Pharaoh's heart and then Pharaoh hardens his own heart again after that. And so, but we still, through the narrative, we also see an intensification. And so at some, there's some point where Pharaoh has hardened his heart um, where I guess how I see it is that God gives him over to that hardening. And so it's, it's with the view of ultimately, I would say like judgment unto salvation. Like that's a phrase that Nick would use to describe it. And I find that's a really helpful, um, lens through which to analyze the story because that's, that's not the end. Um, God, takes his people out of Egypt. He confronts evil in sort of a concentrated manner when he hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he can overcome it, so that Israel can be freed, so that the Messiah can come and eventually um, be a light to all nations. And that includes Egypt and I guess Pharaoh too. Um, and so, so yeah, so then that took me into discussion of like broader different uh, theological paradigms for freedom. So I looked at some open theism. I compared it to classical theism. And then I looked at sort of a new a new view of freedom, um, which was in Jeff Hawking's book, uh, Freedom Unlimited. Um, and so, yeah, it was both very challenging and rewarding. My most challenging paper, let's see. The one for Nick's class was fun because it was... Uh, mostly biblical exegesis with the help of other people who are better than me at that. <laughs> and like even thinking about like how far I've come in this, in that past semester, like being able to read the Bible in a totally different way and get new meaning out of it that you would never expect on a, on a surface level. So I, I was writing about Malachi, which often gets forgot because it's at the very end of the Old Testament and it's very short, but there's a lot of good good wisdom in there about justice and fear. And the, the passage that I use is chapter 2, uh, 10 to 16, which is talking about divorce and how um, I think it's the, the NRSV translation says that um, God says he hates divorce which immediately struck me as something interesting. <laughs> so I, I started by just examining some of the other translations, and they're all very different throughout that whole like six, ver- six or seven verse passage. So I thought, that's kind of interesting. Why is it so hard for people to get pinned down like a precise um, or relatively precise translation of this? And then so I did some more research and kept looking and there's there's um really tricky the hebrew is really tricky to to translate because it's like a literal translation doesn't really make sense but the like a more figurative translation is also kind of like there's still something missing so one one person one specifically a woman woman's um interpretation was that there's there's they're dealing with dealing with infertility, 
So there are certain fertility practices that w- led to um, I- uh, idolatry and d- the divorce of their Jewish wives or wives in general or something like that. So there's a connection between the divorce or sending, the direct translation was the sending away of these women and marrying women of a different God. Um, and so they're, they're trying to figure out why that would happen and why God would hate that. So yeah, that, that was an enjoyable and challenging, challenging paper. Well, the most challenging paper for me would be this paper that I'm still working on. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> uh, it's for GMO's class, uh, Postmodern Theories of Intersubjectivity. And I'm trying to write something interesting <laughs> about the notion of proximity as a as a new way of thinking of our God, our relationship with God, where um, traditionally there would be um, notions of ecstasy or, you know, entheos, like being enthused by God, you know, being possessed by God or, you know, like having this mystical experience of experiencing God in ecstasy. I want to see if I can find a way to overcome that kind of um, one way or the other. Like it's either you or me completely um, kind of uh, equation uh, by looking at proximity and having just enough space between you and I uh, to feel the other's presence, um, but also keep myself intact. Um, So I'm also thinking of this notion of non-identical repetition um, through which not just the self as the subject is formed in relation to the other, but just the whole relationship itself, it becomes more and more clear through this repetition. Mm, yeah, so I'm, I'm there. Uh, it's, it's so interesting. It's such a fascinating way of rethinking um, relationships. Um, it's liberating in a way to um, think of proximity and how there's room for breathing. And well, let's say in in thinking of our relationship with God, there's the room for Holy Spirit to breathe in and out uh, in between the spaces um, while uh, my subjectivity can be respected so that God can be enjoyed (laughs) even more. Maybe it's a bit ambitious and maybe that's why it's taking so long to finish. But yeah, so that's what I'm working on. A staple of everyday life here at ICS is the rhythm of classes. Every week, senior and junior members gather to discuss shared texts and explore various philosophical, theological, and historical themes together. The classroom is where studying at ICS most obviously becomes a communal project. 
For our second segment, we're attempting to bridge the divide between the classroom and life. So we're inviting our senior members to introduce us to some of their current and upcoming courses. First up, we've asked Rebecca Schmick to tell us about this summer's Art in Orvieto program and to talk about the relationship of art and faith. So to start, we'd first like to give you a chance to speak briefly about the Art in Orvieto program. Um, but then we'd like to chat a little bit about some of the burning questions that fuel the program itself. Uh, so this summer you hope to lead the fourth iteration of Art in Orvieto uh, in Orvieto, Italy. Uh, could you tell us first how the idea for this program came about and mention how the program had developed over the years? Perhaps uh, speak a little about your hopes for and for those who might wish to take the program. Sure. Um, so the first thing, there's a kind of a historical moment when the I, when it occurred to me that this might be an interesting program for us to undertake. And that was working, well, um, I g- grew up in the Boston area. I knew a lot of people who were connected to a, a, a liberal arts college in that area called Gordon College. And I was at my niece's wedding. And I was sitting across from some folks, you know, who who were just, you know, asking me, hadn't seen me for a long time because I haven't lived in the area for a long time. And um, they asked me about, you know, my degree and the works, work I was doing, uh, in, which is a Renaissance kind of focus. And, um, and finally they said, well, you know, you might be interested in, in uh, a program run by John Skillen, uh, a, 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 an endeavor which is called the Studio for Art, Faith, and History. Because um, he does something similar, and he's always looking for people who, you know, who would be able to contribute to the program in some way. Um, so I wrote John because I had it in the back of my head that I could see um, some kind of European experience being a really interesting part of uh, of the of life at ICS or for our students. Um, and he got back to me pretty quickly, and and um, and so we arranged for me to to come and actually give a lecture in one of his. Uh, classes. So at the time, he was still um, a participant as one of the the faculty on staff during their uh, exchange that they do. Well, it's not an exchange. They bring students over for two semesters during the year. So each, I think everyone, in fact, at Gordon, it's kind of built into your program. And I like I liked this idea. Um, so I went and and we had a great class and obviously John, who's a medievalist, deals with the late Middle Ages, and I had a lot in common around what our understandings of um, the ro- this, the role that art played in you know in that time period, um, both uh, socially and uh, and a lot of the intellectual language around how art operated. So we had a lot in common, um, and so he invited me back to do one of their uh, sessions. So. The program works. They have people who come in, Gordon faculty or or beyond, mm-hmm. um, who come in and teach one course um, for the whole for a whole month, mm-hmm. and that's what the students' main course is. And then they also they also had a, a sort of a practicum because these tended to be art students. Um, so I went and did that in in June and and uh, got to know what they were doing there. Got to know the facility. Got to know the students who were really amazing and um and it was a great experience so then john and i were in conversation after that to see if we couldn't make this work for bringing um our level students so these were undergraduates but now we're 
<clears throat> the idea was to bring graduate students, but then also open it up to adult learners who would be interested um, both in an academic course um, that I guess we'll talk about in a second, um, but also who uh, who might be interested in practical workshops. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's where the idea, it was kind of mirroring to some degree the, the format that was being used in this in the Gordon undergraduate program. Um, yeah, so that was how it got started. And John, you know, John and I just leapt in. What kinds of things do you do in Orvieto? What does the program entail? So the, there's an academic course, which I teach, um, that looks at the, the role of image in the three main Christian traditions, so hmm. Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox. But we do it in, the, in a historical sort of unfolding uh, from early church use of imagery to, um, to what you might call uh, high Catholic okay. use of imagery to, to what happened at the Reformation and, and how that, the use of imagery was very reconfigured hmm. uh, at that point. And I try to do that. So it, there's a historical thread that we're following through. Um, since my specialty is on the critical literature of art that was developing from about the, the Renaissance, although I would argue some really significant features were already in place in the late hmm. Middle Ages, um, we, I, I'm able to bring to the fore as we look at this, as the way we look, as we look at the way image was, um, shall we say, uh, used both for theological purposes, but also um, sort of more broadly than that, I'm able to see how this separate conception of art functioning, you know, along with the church, but then alongside the church, once you get into the Protestant, um, I'm sort of able to bring that to a fore as you as the literature moves toward a separate, shall we say, philosophy of art or the mm. development of the whole aesthetics tradition that didn't happen till the 18th century. So that's what we're looking at. So it's one of the things that I'm kind of able to bring out. Um, one is some traditional um, understandings of the, the function of image in the context of Christianity, um, and then how the, the ideas that supported that that are maybe not that maybe come from rhetoric or or, or from poetics um, that were developing um, that were brought into that whole discussion, um, and then to see how some of those ideas got um, re. re Reframed, hmm. you know, as you're as you're, you know, carrying on historically. Um, so, I'm. It would be unusual for, uh, for maybe contemporary my peers in art history. Possibly, they the theological side of that argument would yeah. be for a, for a variety of reasons, not of that much interest, but also to some degree ignored, hmm. although that's changed um, probably since the 1990s or there's been more of an interest in um, the use of image as opposed to um, you know how image was used in the context of uh, liturgy or hmm. giving that a value that it that because art history has been so focused on, Art, yeah. high art with a capital A, um, there was a tendency to ignore, to completely ignore the use of imagery in the context of the church. So that's been turned over, hmm. um, but it, it also, so it, it just, I feel like it gives me a kind of a vision for both, both those threads um, to see that 
unfolding. Um, so that's so that's what we look at, and then at the very end of the course, um, we look at how then uh, contemporary um, theologians or philosophers of art who are coming at art from a Christian perspective um, engage with these issues around image and mm. the use of of uh, imagery in the church. Um, so things that would captivate, um, I think, contemporary artists who often feel like there's an antagonism, either an antagonism they receive from the church, or an, if, particularly if they're Protestant, or an antagonism that comes from culture at large mm. around you know, uh, faith-based practices with regard to one's art. Um, so this is to sort of give them uh, a framework for figuring some of that out, uh, and then reading what contemporaries are, are saying. So aimed then, not only at graduate students who might have this interest, but also at practicing artists who would really hmm. want to um, investigate. You know, why is it? What is this peculiar history where, you know, we hold up in museums the highest art? You know, uh, all of which was church-based. You know, up to the Renaissance and even you know through the Baroque period, um, and then weirdly in our own contemporary context, you know, church-related art has absolutely no. Uh, credibility. So, hmm. what kinds of students would be interested in your program at Orvieto? And in the end, what would you hope that they'd get out of it? So, I, I've already kind of talked about, you know, we have a number of kind of students in mind for the program. Um, graduate students who might come to ICS. We have a program that's a uh, Master of Worldview Studies with an arts concentration called mm -hmm. Art, Religion, and the Theology, ART. So when you see art in Orvieto, that that uh, is referring to mm -hmm. art, religion, and theology. It's very convenient. Yeah, and, and I know. It was, we didn't even have Nick helping us. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so... Um, for our graduate students, you know, there's a certain kind of graduate student who might come and um, be doing our Master of Worldview Studies, and so we, we want to make this, you know, a, a substantial part of their program. Um, but then we also, you know, but anyone who's studying at ICS might, you know, who would be interested in that subject area would find it interesting. Um, it's open also to, you know, graduate students at TST or from other um, uh, theological schools, we've had that in the past, or any, I mean, anybody who's looking, uh, looking for graduate credit. Mm -hmm. um, so the adult learners, as I said, are, you know, people who are engaged by the arts uh, and that problematic around the relationship between um, Christianity, faith, religion, theology, and the arts. Uh, my academic class can allow them to maybe as auditors to kind of look at this history be participant without having to do the work required, you know, to turn mm -hmm. it into a graduate credit. <clears throat> so we've had some wonderful, uh, you know, en engagements because we also part of our the course includes discussion. So you know, we have a period of, um, you know, reading some texts and lecture, and then also discussion. So there, it's always pretty lively, and we're really looking for people who have that, you know, who have that interest. Um, but then also. We have peop practicing artists who might be writers. We have a, we've had a writers workshop, uh, and those who are are visual artists. <clears throat> and ag again, I think I've already kind of said that they they often want to sort of figure out this this position that they find themselves in, which can of often feel very isolating. I think to be an artist today, there's just you know the isolation of doing your artwork, which mm -hmm. is all of us feel when we're you know 
having to squirrel ourselves away for uh, academic or creative efforts, whatever they may be. Um, there's the isolation of um, within the context of the church, if you're finding that the church really doesn't understand what you're doing, um, or or ways to support you, or ways to sort of recognize the value of what you're doing. And then there's a societal isolation for sure for artists who uh, we have this very schizophrenic appreciation, extreme appreciation for established artists who, um, you know, that we revere and are willing to, you know, go to see in the museums, et cetera. But then we, we have no place to, to societally, you know, kind of to recognize the efforts of artists who may not be doing, you know, who are, you know, not in this, uh, this um, have this patent or seal of approval hmm, say, yeah. by, by the art world. Um, so, you know, for there's a level of isolation, which I think artists feel uh, quite acutely. And that was one of the ideas was to um, provide a, a, a really wonderful studio, which is one of the things mm -hmm. that we have, a place one could go and write and be inspired. Mm. Um, hearing the ideas about this history, which is, you know, very profound for what they're doing, um, uh, but then also able to do their work in a supportive and kind of communal environment. Um, so we, you know, we eat our meals together. Um, we have, you know, small moments of worship together. We have, uh, you know, we, we take three major excursions together, um, which, you know, is a, always a kind of bonding experience. Mm -hmm. um, we, you know, we go to Rome, we go to Assisi, we go to Florence. Uh, and then we have some short, shorter excursions that we do in the area, um, which again, uh, you know, we just get, you know, you get in the bus and you go, and it's it's a, a, a kind of a mini road trip and uh, and all that goes with that. And um, again, so to create some kind of um, context where one can feel supported in what they're doing with other artists who are equally also engaged in this, uh, the experience of being a, uh, an artist of faith and how that that translates for them into their work. Um, yeah, so so that's kind of the idea and our hopes that that we will, you know, create. It's a three-week residency, which um, is sort of, I guess it's what we've come to. We wouldn't mind if it were longer, but that's what we've come to in terms of people being able to take out the time. But it's three weeks so that it gives you more than a, a sense of, um, you know, just dropping in and, and leaving again, which uh, uh, sort of ordinary kind of tour courses can be. So you're you're situated in Orvieto, which is a beautiful hill town, just about an hour north of Rome, um, right on the train line. So if you want to do any travel yourself, you, you're, you're able to do that. Um, and you'll, you're ad libitum, you know, in the city, you can walk up and down. It takes about 20 minutes from, and uh, the wonderful resources in the city. The papacy was there, hence at one point, and hence there is this extraordinary cathedral, you know, very oversized for <laughs> the, the, its context, um, you know, which is, but it's just magnificent. And all these things are kind of within a five or 10 minute walk. Oh, wow. Um, so you do feel, you know, like you're really living something of an Italian life and experience, uh, getting to know people in, in the community. I've never been outside of North America. Um, do you find that your classes taking place in Orvieto enrich the content that you're teaching? Um, and what do you think about that? 
Oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> um, well, most historians will would have that as a fundamental, you know, anything, you know, if you're studying British history, you know, to go to England, even today, mm-hmm. is going to give you an existential experience of sort of the things that you are uh, studying in an abstract way. So it almost goes without saying that that's an incredibly valuable learning tool mm-hmm. to be in the places. I mean, it just comes alive. Uh, uh, you know, and we, apropos the whole notion of how imagery itself, you know, seems to affect us in ways that, you know, knowledge on a page or knowledge through hearing does not. Um, sh- well, spoken knowledge, shall we say. So, yeah, I, um, it just makes, I mean, to, eat, to go to Italy today, um, where you can go into the countryside and uh, into a, a small parish church or be out in the middle of what seems like nowhere and mm. realize that some of the the greatest masters that uh, you know that have been filling up the museums for years now um, we were situated in these you know very local places for very local purposes within the context of church liturgy etc is, is hugely significant um, to uh, to clarify, for example, that the museum is a very modern um, mm. uh, context for, for, for the experience of art, for sure. Um, so just that in itself. And that, that's something that, um, you know, John, my good friend John Skillen, you know, really has been very fundamental for him and his um, trying to, I know he, with his undergraduates, he's trying to um, uh, open up the idea to them that, you know, we can actually make art in community mm. for yeah. a community purpose. Um, you know, integrated into, uh, you know, our worship practices or integrated into the spaces we live in and the communities that we live in. Um, yeah, so it's very significant to experience that in person, to get the full, the full value of it. Um, yeah, yeah, and I usually try to, uh, the, I think a surprising feature um, of, some of my work is that very often, of course, it shows up in the art. Some of the philosophical ideas show up in the art. And that's always a bit of a surprise because we certainly think philosophical ideas as being <laughs> completely abstract. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's very easy to, you know, make the book and the word. Uh, but they're, they can be lived. They mm, can be lived. Yeah. I think especially in, like, the Protestant context. I know from for me growing up, it was hard to have a a Christian art, especially that wasn't like kitsch or, mm. I don't know, like plasticky kind of feeling. Um, maybe could you explain a little bit of the history of like image in the Protestant tradition, especially, especially for listeners um, uh, that have a connection with ICS that are in the Protestant tradition. tradition yeah. yeah. Um, well, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of contested history. So to what degree, um, you know, the, there's a long history, shall we say, of iconoclasm or iconoclastic thinking um, in the church. So not just in the Protestant tradition. So certainly, you know, in the Orthodox tradition, there were two major moments of iconoclasm that threw out images entirely. Mm-hmm. So what what the problem there is is the way in which um, the way that well the way the problem has been and was identified is is the service that one pays to the image. Um, you know that it's it's able to replace. Uh, you know, if you're having, I mean, it's a long-standing theme in 
you know, in, in Christianity not to have mm-hmm. graven images. Uh, so portraying God is a problem right there uh, because of because of idolatry in, in the early Christian era. <clears throat> and, you know, people using idols, you know, in the Old Testament, we're, we're well familiar with that. Um, so that's a fear that, you know, lingers even in, you know, say Muslim religion today, that where, you know, some severe iconoclasm has gone on. So that's sort of the underlying fear. And what did the Protestants really think about that? Um, so some of them, there were iconoclasts, and, and the iconoclasts, um, theologians were few, relatively few. Um, and people like Calvin, um, I think made, uh, well, let's take Calvin and Luther since they were sort of the, the, the major <clears throat> Protestant theologians um, for the Reformation. Um, so Luther, you know, as is evident in Lutheran churches today, was not so fussed, uh, uh, you know, about uh, the way images were used because he, he had a, a view that said something like, you know, the real I- idols are in our hearts. You know, if uh, you give, you know, it's almost like you're giving images more power than they really have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so he wasn't as concerned. And I think Calvin, for Calvin, it was, he also gave a kind of similar uh, interpretation by saying, you know, um, humans just have this propensity to worship images, um, you know, even images that are not meant to be worshipped. So even images that are not what we, we would think of as heading in the direction of an icon, um, which was a very functioning kind of devotional image in the time period. Um, but even just narrative images, if you put them in the church, for some reason people come and worship them. Mm-hmm. So he, he his idea was not to destroy them, and he didn't see art as something that should be destroyed and negated he thought just to save people from themselves let's get rid of uh, you know take them out of the church altogether so of course that presented a kind of crisis for many artists you know who were involved in church decoration of course um and so there is a an argument that that began sort of the beginning of a process of secularization um for art you know happening with the protestant reformation um so, which is to say, in Calvin's case, because I think this is that maybe apropos what you're asking, Theron, is in his case, he actually saw the arts as gifts. You know, this is an, one of the other things that, it's a very strong Aristotelian idea underlying it, that, you know, humans think and make, uh, and that's appropriate to what, who we are and fulfilling our purposes, Um uh, is you know appropriate to you know our very um, our very end as as human beings. So he was very positive and and hu- as he trained as a humanist, so he was very positive around um, the ideas that supported the, uh, the arts. And so outside the context of the church, he was you know kind of all for it. Um, and uh, although you know and, and within the church, he just thought you know why give ourselves uh, an extra headache, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does that mean for, you know, so that, so in the context of, of uh, Calvinist churches with this kind of removal of imagery, um, a couple things happened. There was a replacement. Um, there was a, almost a light aesthetics that became, came within the church, within in the Calvinist context to, you know, these beautiful kind of lighted walls, um, devoid of imagery that would somehow 
um, uh, impose something in one's uh, aesthetic experience of the divine. Um, you know, so um, music, of course, is very, the, the psalms were still sung in the, in the Calvinist churches. So, and, and hearing, of course, was sort of given this very high value because it is the way in which you can also hear the word. Um, so that creates a different aesthetic experience that I think many um, people who have grown up as Protestants, you know, the, to them, you know, through through habit, this seems like um, uh, the kind of experience that that speaks to them. Hmm. Um, uh, and and the uh, a baroque church might make them feel like just overloaded with kind of sensate uh, experiences. You know, so what does that mean in the contemporary context? Um, uh, it's a difficult question for for. Um, Contemporary worshippers, because some other things have happened, whereby we, what you described, the the art that goes on in Protestant churches can be kind of kitschy. It also can be kind of kitschy in in uh, Catholic churches. Um, so kitsch is is has its own history, <laughs> uh, where art becomes very subjective and very sub, uh, sentimentalized. It ceases to deal with uh, themes which are. Um, of heightened value, you know, that are, have a real profundity to them and becomes, you know, very sentimental. And um, so that, you know, that goes against what our ideas around how art, you know, if you, if you think of, you know, bad uh, gospel praise music versus Bach, you know, you're, that might say it all, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But there was something in the time period that Bach was writing that was qualitatively different. Well, uh, thanks for coming in today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. And we hope that our listeners will make the trip to Orvieto this summer. <laughs> and that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we and our weekly guests get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun the movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Theron, what's your pleasure? Well, um, this past weekend I got the opportunity to uh, relax a little bit and watch some good old Netflix. So I, I watched the entirety of the Witcher series, and I also watched the movie uh, Mar The Marriage Story, which was, I really enjoyed the, the marriage story because uh, the, something about the, the dialogue and the, the acting was really, really well done. It's directed by Noah Baumbach, who's like, he's really good at getting like realistic dialogue that like, like draws you in just because it's so like you could totally see someone actually having that conversation and stuff. So it was really, it was really good and really interesting. Well, that sounds like quite the weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I love a good binge, and I don't even know if I love a good binge, but I am so prone to a good binge that mm -hmm. to the fact to the point where like I have to get through the whole series so that I can stop and, <laughs> and do the things I should be doing in my life. <laughs> Yeah, it's got to purge it. At the, once you're drawn in, there's there's, there's no, no hope. No, there's no go back. You just have to you just have to let yourself be fully enraptured. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So my pleasure, uh, I'm switching it up a little bit this week um, in that my pleasure is a website. Uh, so I'm a huge fan of Radiohead, um, the band. And so Radiohead last week, uh, they changed their website to add a portion called the Radiohead Public Library, mm. um, in which you can get a you can get yourself a Radiohead Public Library card on their <laughs> website. I don't, but my friend does because he's a geek. Um, but uh, and you can uh, go on there and watch endless amounts of uh, footage from various points in there. Uh, in their corpus, uh, especially the early stuff is really fascinating because it's not at all what you think of when you think about Radiohead. <laughs> um, and it's pretty bad to be honest, but it's kind of endearing and it's yeah, just to watch the crappiness. evolution of Tom York, yeah, as a just his appearance, it's his appearance, very strange. yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, he was looking the worst, I think, in like the early 2000s. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like to track the development of Tom York. Um, and uh, yeah, and so on Facebook, that each day different members of the band have been like curating uh, their favorites or certain parts or narratives they like to draw, th- uh, draw through their um, certain videos. So uh, the other day, Phil Selway, who's the drummer, he... Uh, he was like going through and explaining, like he would put a clip up of uh, a show um, and then he would explain like why it was his favorite show during what period and like which went, um, why they made certain creative decisions uh, in that show, Mm -hmm. uh, which is fascinating to me. So that's why I'm, that was my pleasure this week is the Radiohead (laughs) Public Library. Rebecca, do you? <laughs> <laughs> now that we've gone on for, for far uh, too long. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm trying to figure if I should answer truth. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I will I will pursue uh, British costume dramas, which is very like many women my age, and um, British sitcoms. I don't seem to be so turned on by uh, North American humor so much. So ones that I've liked, and I just couldn't think of the title of it, is IT. Do you know that one? No. no it's a British, okay. I think it's just, it's about the, it's about a, an a office in a big business, and it's the IT people. Okay. And they're in the basement, and they do, and so they have this woman who run, knows nothing about IT, but she has to run this department, and then there are these two complete British geeks who, um, yeah, so I think it's quite funny. Mm. <laughs> and so, um, you know, and it's outrageous. A lot of it's outrageous. So, but I can't, I think it's, I, there's something else to it. I tease something, mm. but I haven't seen it for a while. Mm. Um, yeah, so British sitcoms kind of do it for me mm. of a certain kind, a certain kind. Yeah. Um, yeah, nothing, I'm trying to think of anything this week. That's okay. Yeah. British sitcoms is, is plenty. I, okay. I, I don't have very much. Um, experience or exposure to British sitcoms, except for like the British Office. Um, yeah, it would be along those lines. Although maybe, I mean, I, like this one I'm describing is a, is a heck of a lot sillier okay. than, than that. Yeah. Yeah. It's usually really dry and, and like dr- really drawing on that awkward tension of just people being weird and yeah. 
What in the office? Yeah, especially yeah, in the office. Yeah, yeah. It's a little more. It's a little. There's an underlying. There's a lot of anger stuff hmm. going on in the office. I feel like, and I think the ones. This one that I have in mind, it's just hilarious. <laughs> I mean, it, these outrageous. Um, there's one where, because <laughs> she knows nothing about the internet, and they're they are complete geeks, and so yeah. at some point. Um, she does something that gets her in a lot of trouble with her boss, who is the head of this corporation. And so they, the, the two geeks, cook up the idea that she can redeem herself by having a special meeting where she can talk about the Internet uh, and what's happening in her department. And so they tell her that the Internet is in this black box. <laughs> and so, of course, she believes it. And she takes it to this meeting and the whole, you know, the whole... Everybody in the office is there, and and so she kind of reveals it, and there's you know there's the internet, <laughs> <laughs> and so everyone's sitting there very uncomfortably, and then somebody crashes through the wall, uh, for un, you know you don't know the reasons, and knocks the thing off the table, and obviously everybody in the room also thinks it's the internet, <laughs> and so they're totally freaked out, they all run out of the room, so it's you know completely ridiculous. So the guys who thought they would be playing a big joke on her. It totally gets turned around because everybody else thought it was the internet too. It's just this. <laughs> anyway, it's pretty silly. So that's my just one episode of a lot of silliness. That's it for our show this week. We hope you'll stay tuned. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. You can follow my co-host at at Mark Standish. And you can also follow ICS at I-N-S-C-H-R. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends.